You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. A reading from Acts 17. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this idle babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We'll hear from you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Please be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about apologetics in Scripture. We've talked about apologetics in salvation. We've seen that apologetics is biblically commanded. We've seen that it exists in the Old Testament. We had the illustration of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. The New Testament illustrations of our Lord with turning water into wine, vindicating His authority over nature and His raising of the paralytic. But what about the apostles? What did they do in dealing with unbelief? Did they request people check out the evidence? Did they challenge people from outside their situation to weigh the evidence? Or did they just simply ask people to believe based on no evidence at all? Didn't they simply preach at people, not reason with them or give them evidence? We're told in Acts 17.6 that their message turned the Roman world upside down. But was that by engagement with the culture or or standing outside the culture and preaching at it? Did they meet the objections to Christianity by telling people to pray about it and you'll find out whether it's true or not? Are the apostles like modern-day televangelists who win over people by smiling a lot and telling listeners to try Jesus as your life coach, and your family life will be cleaned up, and your business will succeed. Today's text, Acts 17, answers the question of how the early first Christians after the ascension dealt with the skeptic. Apologetics and the skeptic is our topic today. The kind that you run into all the time in a college town or on the assembly line or in your legal practice or at the supermarket. More specifically, Acts 17 describes Paul's encounter with a group of intellectuals and academics 
at the center of philosophy in the ancient world, Athens, Greece. A brief word about Athens. If Rome gave us law, roads, and bridges, Athens gave us Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Athens was the Harvard of the ancient world. By the first century, its main claim to fame was still as a center of philosophical debate and inquiry. Paul ends up being escorted to the marketplace in Acts 17, up a hill, up the heights of the Areopagus, to what is known as Mars Hill, to encounter philosophers and other intellectual heavyweights in Athens who were fascinated, the text says in verse 21, with anything new and innovative. They were the Silicon Valley of the ancient world. Mars Hill, where philosophers hung out to debate, to debate the latest ideas and where final judgment was passed in legal matters. Athens and Mars Hill was like the intersection of Harvard and the Supreme Court at one location. That's Athens, Acts 17. One highly regarded scholar says the future of Christianity rested on how Paul addressed the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17. Would Christianity engage the culture with common ground arguments and present the evidence for Jesus as evidence that can be checked out by any serious inquirer as a real historical fact capable of verification? Or would he simply ask people to accept the Old Testament as the accurate, yea, inerrant Word of God that needs to be accepted on its own authority? The future of Christianity, says this scholar a hundred years ago, rested on what happened in Acts 17. We see three things from this text. First, Paul went to all strata of society. Second, he used common ground arguments. And third, he made Christ crucified and risen for sinners the center of his message. Not moral reform or social justice. First, Paul went to all strata of society. We see this in verse 17. He not only went to the Hebrew members of the synagogue, which he did regularly, but he went to the shish kebab salesmen in the marketplace in Athens and to the professors of philosophy at Harvard who were lecturing at Mars Hill, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, Paul's rabbinic training at that time was from the top Jewish lawyer of his day, Gamaliel, at whose feet, Acts tells us, Paul studied. Paul was prepared to handle objections to Jesus raised in the synagogue, objections grounded in the Old Testament. That was his training. But his formal training did very, very little, if anything, to equip him in dealing with secularized Athenian philosophers or the shish kebab salesman with the practical questions objecting to Christian belief. But Paul went to where the skeptics were because of his concern for the lost. He knew no intellectual or social barriers to narrow his field of evangelism. The gospel is to be preached to all creatures, rich and poor, liberals and conservatives, the uneducated and the educated, whatever and to whomever you come in contact with. 
Note the contrast with our churches in Maine today that are often blue-collar or white-collar or white or black or Hispanic or politically left or politically right. But we should be mindful of Jesus' followers. A prostitute and an accountant, a rich young ruler, and the lost. Paul went to where doors opened, from prisons to palaces and everything in between. He went to all strata of society because our Lord did. Second, Paul used common ground arguments with skeptics. Paul did not position himself outside of the non-Christian's frame of reference and preach at him. Nor does he demand that the philosophers come to the synagogue in order to hear the message. Come to church, our pastor will tell you about Jesus, not me. He instead developed common ground and reasoned with the Greek philosophers on their own turf. How did Paul develop these common ground arguments with Athenian academics? Well, he studied their own worldview. We learn in verse 15 that Paul was left in Athens after Berea. Timothy and Silas had had it with Paul because every time you went with Paul somewhere, you ended up getting beaten up. They left him in Athens, I'm sure, with an instruction to mind himself and get him to Kuzi while they did their work and finished it up in Berea. Specifically, Paul spent that time searching and observing the culture of Athens that he was in, according to verse 16. We learn from the text that he observed the idols by walking around carefully the city of Athens. It also says he went to the marketplace every day to reason with whomever was present. Paul learned what the unique issues were to presenting the gospel in Athens. Those unique hurdles, the same unique hurdles that exist in every town, even Birmingham. Special intellectual or cultural objections to being coming grips with Christ crucified and risen for sinners. Paul does this in Athens in the marketplace by what I would call something akin to random evangelism, which has a very nasty name. Nobody does random evangelism anymore. It happens to be all over the New Testament. People talking to other people about Jesus Christ in their sphere of influence, however God brings people into their path. I was a product of total random evangelism at the university campus in California. Paul, however, uses whatever societal opportunity existed to present the gospel. The marketplace is where people like to go to reason. It was the Agora marketplace in Athens that was the blogosphere of his day. The Starbucks gathering place. That's where he wanted to be. Interesting to contrast Paul's apologetic concern for understanding the secular objections of his day with how many Christians sadly operate today. Some would never study secular objections to Christianity in the first place, preferring to preach at people, at the Athenian intellectuals, for being morally reprobate. 
maybe even deplorable, studying philosophy which leads everyone to hell we all know. Paul doesn't take that tack at all. Some would even say that reasoning with people is biblically inappropriate because people are dead in their sins and trespasses. They'll fail to understand any facts that we present to them. And some will say bringing the gospel to philosophers is a royal waste of time. Have you ever seen a converted philosopher? I've watched Billy Graham crusades. Few indeed are the philosophers that come down the sawdust trail confessing Christ as their Savior. Paul, though, is going to develop common ground arguments through his study of the culture he was operating in. But this is not the Athens of the golden age of Greece of 4th and 5th century B.C. That was the era of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. That was the Greece that gave us the foundational works in philosophy, music, art, anatomy, poetics, and literature. No, this is not the golden age of Greece, the Athens of the first century, but the Athens of philosophy, it still is. And at Athens, Paul confronted specifically, says the text in verse 18, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers at Mars Hill. Both schools of philosophy came from 4th century B.C. thinkers. The Epicureans by this time were cynical, self-indulgent, ethicists. They were what is some have called the Sadducees of the Greeks, the kinds of people that even Jesus avoided, interested in argumentation for the sake of argumentation. But it was different with the ethically astute and sensitive Stoics. That was a different story. Paul directs his attention to those willing at least to listen. The Stoics believed in the possibility of good, in a creator life force, in real evil, in a free will. But they were generally pantheists. Stoic philosophy was not exactly the 39 articles of the Anglican Confession, but there was enough there to develop common ground for Paul. So Paul begins with the common ground of telling them, I see from walking around and studying your culture that you're very religious and believe in at least one God for sure. He makes the point to, that he's intrigued by the statue they have to the unknown God. In the Greek, it's agnostos, from which we get agnosticism. The God that covers all the other gods that I forgot about. The God without knowledge. The God the Athenians worshipped. Paul is saying, you seem to lack knowledge about this statue to an unknown God. You have statues in every God of, for every God in every physical place. You have 500 years of philosophical speculation about God. And you've accomplished incredible things in math, in science, in writing, in lyric poetry. You have it all, save for one thing. You lack knowledge about who the true God is because you can't work yourself up to God. You need, as Plato says in the Phaedo, a raft of revelation to get you over the sea of doubt in order to have peace with God. So it sounds, Paul says, like maybe you don't have all the pieces of the pie together. I'm going to address what you worship in ignorance and present to you the case for what you admit you only have a glimmer of. 
Paul begins where 500 years of Greek philosophical speculation had finally arrived at, a statue to an unknown God. Paul then uses the common ground of belief the Athenians had in creation, and Paul first talks about the Creator God in Acts 17. First article of the Creed, Aristotle's unmoved mover, the basis for the contingency argument for the existence of God. Every Greek would have no problem believing in the existence of God based on Aristotle's unmoved mover argument. It wasn't very controversial for Paul to do this. Very few people got murdered in Athens for preaching the existence of God based on Aristotle's dictums. You wouldn't lose your life in Athens for it either. Still, this is a long ways away from the death of Christ for the sins of the world. If Paul had ended there, there would have been no offense and none would have been taken because Christ in His saving office would not have been presented to the people. That central message of Christianity is about what happened at a very specific time in history. The Gospel is about what happened 2,000 years ago on a hill about a 30-minute walk from the center of Jerusalem from 12 to 3 one Friday afternoon. That message means the good news is not about making Athens more moral. Paul's not interested in making more polite Athenians. He is interested in seeing those dead in trespasses and sins become alive through believing the death of Jesus and His resurrection for the sinner's justification. So Paul will not stop at establishing God as Creator. He does not preach the details of how God created. He doesn't get into six-day, 24-hour creationism. Nor does he get into a theistic evolution argument or theory. Nor does he mention what day or weekend the Lord is going to return. What does he do? He uses familiar Greek philosophical sources to build his argument for creation and that man in his wisdom is on an utterly futile search for God. Paul mentions at least two 4th century and 3rd century Greek poets and quotes them specifically in Acts 17. The poets mentioned are Cleanthes and Aretus. In fact, in verse 27, Paul uses a word for what the Greeks are involved in. He says you grope for God. You search for God. That word grope is uniquely used in Acts 17. comes from Greek lyric poetry. Homer used the same word to describe the blind cyclops seeking the entrance to his cave. Plato uses the same Greek word to describe man's guesses and efforts to find truth. The point is that word was tremendously significant to his audience. It shows that Paul had understood the objections, the worldview, and the vocabulary of the people he was operating with. Paul is a wide reader. Gamaliel was not assigning Cleanthes and Aretus to rabbinic students in Jerusalem. Trust me. Paul's apologetic zeal and concern for the lost led him to read those sources. And note, Paul doesn't water down or skip a presentation of sin and lawlessness and judgment. 
without an explanation of what the disease is, the cure makes no sense. Paul presents the Evangelion, or good news, but only after he presents the news of the human condition to the people of Athens, that they are all bound as lawbreakers destined for judgment and the wrath of God. The problem with all the religions in the world, from the cults to the Eastern meditative options, distills to this. They misunderstand and take too lightly the nature of the human condition, the seriousness of our rebellion, what it means, what it does, and the remedy that was required that can never be adequate if you don't understand the seriousness of the disease as diagnosed in the biblical text. Paul develops common ground arguments from Greek sources and yet gets to the coming judgment. It's a word to all of us. When the law or the presentation of law-breaking or sin disappears in any presentation to the, of the gospel and it appears to be unnecessary and even a vindictive act of God to punish His Son, we do great disservice to the gospel when we don't explain what the remedy is for the disease and explain the disease clearly. Christianity looks to the unbeliever like a very vindictive story of God pouring out wrath on His Holy Son for no decent reason. Well, Paul not only developed common ground, but finally he made Christ crucified and risen for sinners, not moral reform or social justice, the center of his message. Here we get the culmination of the passage. We learn not just Paul, that Paul went to those outside the Christian position on their own turf and developed common ground arguments, and that he presented the case for sin and judgment, but that he always presented Christ and Him crucified as the only sufficient solution to man's dilemma. He did not devolve into an attack on Athenian culture at the expense of making the offense of the cross central. While not afraid to address sin, he never made the message essentially a moral improvement seminar. By the way, Romans 1-3 to suggests that's a very bad idea. Paul goes right to the cross and the resurrection as the best external evidence that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. He never allows the discussion to simply remain in safe domains like the existence of God, as so many Christians do today. And the cross and the resurrection are presented to the Athenians as external events that they can check out regardless of whether they like Paul and his presentation or not. Verse 31 shows that not only possible, but appropriate to bring the work of Christ into the presentation of those outside the Christian faith, and especially to an intellectual, academic audience. The resurrection is the factual center of the Christian faith. More lawyers have become Christians by checking out the evidence for the resurrection in order to refute Christianity than any other segment of our society. Over 150 works by lawyers, trial lawyers, since the beginning of the Reformation have examined the evidence for Christian belief because Christianity asked to be verified or refuted. 
The response then in Athens was the same as we received today. Verse 32-34. to Some mocked. Some were interested and wanted more. And some believed. The results are clearly in God's hands. There's very strong church tradition that Dionysius the Areopagite was the first bishop of Athens and one of the primary philosophers of Athens. Imagine the impact of that one conversion. That is the power of the presentation of the crucified and risen one. The same message given at Athens saves today when presented. The story of the spotless and holy innocent Lamb of God given for the sins of the world, crucified, dead, and buried for you and for me and judged in our place, and risen again the third day in real space-time history, a historical fact that can be checked out. He has purchased our release by His own blood and ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. The Greeks have given us much, including classical education, of which persists today. Much in human wisdom and by common grace of God has accomplished tremendous things for mankind. In acts of social justice, vindication of important human rights, stopping of genocide, curing of aspects of cancer, cleaning up of the environment, the alleviation of poverty. Man, because of common grace, has accomplished tremendous things. It's just that man cannot, by his own wisdom or strength, be made right with God. That God Himself does through the gift of His Son for the sins of the world. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think through our great High Priest Jesus who suffered in our stead and took our punishment on Calvary's cross but now ever lives to intercede for us as our advocate with the Father. Give you all peace in believing. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.